Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Not to be a downer after a long weekend when eating took center stage, but if you're 40 years old, you might want to hear this upcoming interview. There are new guidelines for people with certain risk factors for heart disease. If you're 40, it may be time to start taking cholesterol-lowering drugs. We'll find out more from a cardiologist at UConn's Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. And later, we check in with WNPR's digital reporter, Ryan Karen King, who has an update about a Hartford man he profiled, Sherwood Taylor. We'll hear more about Ryan's reporting on sober houses in the state, too. But first, what's the future of higher education? That's the question at the next Connecticut Forum, which features one of our guests today. Dr. Freeman Rabowski III is president of UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Dr. Rabowski, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be with you, Lucy. Well, first off, what inspired you to be an educator? Uh, My parents were educators, and they always talked about the fact that teachers touch all of the children in a society and that somehow education transforms lives, and I have always believed that. So your parents were a driving force uh, uh, behind your passion and your career. Uh, Any particular events um, growing up that made you think, this is what I want to do? Sure. My new book on Holding Fast to Dreams focuses on growing up in the civil rights movement in Birmingham, Alabama, and how being a participant in the Children's March led to my philosophy of education and my working to develop young people of all races across disciplines, but particularly in the STEM areas, in science and engineering. And, and the key for all of that is this, that I heard Dr. King say in my church when I was 12 that the children could make a difference in what happens in our country. And I felt empowered by those words, participated in the march, went to jail, had a very rich and, and painful experience, but one that taught me the importance of believing in children and knowing that children can really be empowered to help shape their destiny. And that led to my deciding I want to help educate young people to believe in the significance of democracy and the fact that we should all have a role and an opportunity to make a difference. That's an important message, especially uh, post-election, now that we know who our president-elect will be. So when we look at higher education, you know, it has evolved uh, through the decades. You know, what's the value of higher education today? The fact is that when I was uh, a kid, 12 years old, in in the early 60s, fewer than, only about 10 percent, rather, of Americans had a college degree. and, and if you put it together, it was everything was broken down into black and white. So only between two and three percent of, of blacks and about eleven percent of whites. Today we've gotten up to about thirty percent of Americans with a college degree, with um, slightly over a third of whites, and uh, interestingly enough, only about fourteen percent of, of Latinos or Hispanics, about twenty percent of blacks, and about fifty percent of Asians, depending on the, the group of Asian Asian Americans you're considering. Put it all together, what am I saying? I'm saying that unlike the 60s when we had only 10% with, an, with a college degree, after the Higher Education Act, 
We had many more people of all races going to college and moving into the middle class. And today, we're up to about a third. But that says that two-thirds of Americans still don't have families where someone has gone to college. And what we all know is that with that degree, two-year and four-year degrees, people have many more opportunities to get jobs, to take care of their families, to have a place to live, and to educate their children. So higher education has been the major, the most important driver in building our higher education system, but most important in building the middle class. What do you say to students who are discouraged, whether they're recent grads and they're having a tough time um, getting that job and maybe they've got big student loans? Uh, When people look at that, sometimes they wonder, you know, why am I doing this? What's it all for? Right. I'm always encouraging students to learn the stories of other people because many people did not necessarily have a job as soon as they graduated, number one, and yet they have stories to talk about how they went about getting that job. Number two, we say here at UMBC that once you have gone to college here and graduated, you still are always and always will be a part of this campus. And so if someone doesn't have a job, we feel that it is our responsibility to work with them through our career center to, sh- to make sure they do get a job. And, and for students in college, the most important aspect of the experience, beyond studying hard and learning broadly, is to have internship experiences that will prepare them for the job market. And so practical experience, internships, being open to the possibilities, listening to other people who've been through it, going back to one's campus and saying, I need help in finding a job. And then one one point that's really important, sometimes people think they have to get a specific type of job because of their major. I'm always encouraging young people to get experience, get experience working with people, solving problems, using one's language skills. Those experiences will lead to many more opportunities. I understand you've been the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, since the 90s. Tell me about the, the student population. It's a, it's a fascinating one. It's interesting that my students will often ask me what things were like back in the day, and I'll say, <laughs> what do you mean back in the day? And they say, way back in the 90s when you became president, because many of my students today had not been born when I became president in 92. But this is a campus that has students from 150 countries, Uh, from all over the world. Um, We are about half science and engineering, half arts and humanities and social sciences. Uh, Many students go to grad school, about 40%, but others, large numbers, are working um, in internships while in school, and that's across from the humanities to technology. We produce about a third of the graduates in technology in technology in the state of Maryland. But most important, it's a campus where we focus on grit. We think that Americans too often divide kids into smart and not smart. But when we break it down, what we learn is that what really counts is grit, the willingness to work hard, to be curious about the work, to have resilience, and to be willing to work with other people, and to have a mindset that says, I can do this if I put in the effort and if I get support. I like that. So not fitting into the label that uh, society wants to put 
um, on individuals. You know, when we look at your population at um, your school, yes. I'm, I'm un- I understand that uh, many of these uh, African-American students, UMBC is one of the nation's leading sources of PhDs in science and engineering among African-Americans? Right. We are, we are the leading predominantly white school in sending African-Americans mm-hmm. on to complete PhDs. They get the bachelor's here and go on other places, though we have our own PhD programs, too. Mm-hmm. But to break the demographics down, we are the largest minority group would be of Asian descent, and it's probably about a quarter. And then we have about 15 percent African-Americans and another 6 or 7 percent Hispanic. So we, when you put it all together, that gives you a sense of the population. It's about 50% minority, 50, 50% uh, white. But most important, students of all races do well here. Uh, the graduation rates are statistically not different at all, and you have serious students from all kinds of backgrounds. We are a campus that takes great pride in saying that uh, our athletes – are good students and get great jobs. We are really hot in um, chess and game development and model United Nations. We have an intellectual sports competition going on all the time. And, and most important, it is a campus that really believes that students from every income st- classification can succeed, which is really critical in today's society. It sounds like you're smashing stereotypes. Working hard to do just that and, and knocking down boundaries, a lot of work on interdisciplinarity, on problem solving. We are adjacent to the BWI airport, so we are outside of the city of Baltimore in the suburbs, but we get involved with the sticky issues of the day in the urban setting all the way out to this, this part of, of the state. And, and we attract students, a lot of students from the, the New York um, and, and that broad New England area who come because of the international and domestic diversity of our campus. Tell me more about, you know, why the students at your uh, university are thriving. There's several reasons. One, many are first-generation American. Their parents came here sometimes to grad school, sometimes to work at one of the National Institutes of Health. Most of the, all of the NIH Institutes of Health are in our state, in this corridor, and we're only about 40-some minutes from Washington and about 15 minutes from, from Baltimore. So we're right in the corner. And you have a lot of students who are either first-generation American, whose parents came here to grad school or NIH and remain, or their parents uh, were in the military and retired in this area, and they've got that wonderful work ethic that you want to see. Uh, or they are kids who come from other countries. And that international influence helps our American kids to understand just how hard young human beings can work to excel because nothing takes the place of, the, of hard work. And if you look at New York City and all of the immigrants that came throughout the 20th century and the large number of Nobel laureates who came, what you see is that hunger for knowledge, and they went on to be the best in the world. Well, we've got that on our campus right now. As a result of the Baltimore-Washington corner, as a result of people coming from your part of the country, who want to be the best academically. I mean, this is a campus where the life of the mind is very active. We study Beckett in theater. We study biochemistry and HIV. We're looking at public policy involving everything from the aging population to the impact of technology on society. So it's a very exciting place intellectually. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to Dr. Freeman Rabowski III. He's president of UMBC, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and he's one of the panelists at this week's Connecticut Forum. We're talking about the future of higher education, and tell me about some of the programs, Dr. Rabowski, um, that, sure. that you're innovating and making uh, your students think about the world more broadly. Right. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, most people don't realize that there has been a 50% decline in the percentage of women majoring in computer science in America. In the, in the 80s, we had gotten to about 36% of all computer science majors were women. Today, we are down to 18, between 18 and 20%. In other words, only about two in every 10 computer science majors in America will be women. And yet, the country needs many more people educated in these fields. Um, we have a center for women in IT, a center. It's called CWIT. And this is designed to increase the number of women of all backgrounds who will major in computer science or one of the engineering areas in order to meet the needs in our country. But we also work with humanities majors, arts majors, social science majors to give them technology skills through a variety of courses in, for example, information systems or geographic information systems so that they can also be marketable for all types of positions. Even our students in media and communications will focus on social media and technology. And so one of the major initiatives of our campus is to have technology running as a thread through a variety of programs from computer science and information systems and computer engineering all the way over to geographic information systems, all the way to the humanities and areas such as media and writing. So what do public school systems across the country need to do um, to get more women, more minorities interested in STEM fields before they come to your door? Sure. The two things I would say, number one, anytime we talk about STEM, people will assume we're not giving enough support to the arts, humanities, and social sciences. My campus is very strong about believing in a, a broad array of disciplines as very important to a liberally educated person. So even as I talk as a mathematician about the importance of STEM, I'm going to immediately in the same sentence talk about the importance of the arts, of the humanities, of the social sciences, because we need students who can think broadly, who can write well, who can solve problems, and who can work with other people. And so at the K-12 level, several things are important. The number one skill that we are suggesting students should have would be reading and thinking skills. Because if you give me a child who can read well, I can teach her to solve math, math word problems, physics problems, chemistry problems, engineering problems. But if the child cannot read and think, very difficult to teach word problems in any of the STEM disciplines. And so the emphasis on reading and on showing connections between math and real life, uh, and I would say on reading and writing and language skills, what, the old-fashioned approach really is the most effective. What do you think about Common Core? And my understanding is that you know they're finding new strategies and ways for students to learn, especially math skills, not about uh, just memorization. Right. I know. I think Common Core is very important. Uh, we needed to have a set of standards in the country that we could agree on as important for the future of our nation and of citizens. What we see in Common Core, quite frankly, is no different from what students from advantaged backgrounds get in wealthy schools already. 
and there will be an emphasis on problem solving, on not rote memory, on much more emphasis on finding ways of connecting disciplines, and on learning how to remain patient as one approaches different types of problems. Very important. Very, very important. Now, um, when you do accept a student that um, you know needs extra help yes. um, with the math and science, tell yes. me how you work with them. Right. We, we receive, first of all, we, we attract very high-achieving students, mm -hmm. but even among high-achieving students, there will be variation depending on the strength of the school, the strength of the school system. And so we have a number of approaches, including placement exams. We have a summer bridge program in, in some of our areas. We have supplemental education where, for some students, we have advanced students who go to classes with them to help them learn how to take notes, how to prepare for tests. We have a big emphasis on group collaboration. If you go to the UMBC CDC, for example, that's the center that does not stand for the Center for Disease Control. <laughs> I was it's wondering. Rather, it stands for the Chemistry Discovery Center. And uh, what you'll find is that our emphasis in many of our classes is on a, a redesign of the lecture approach to focus on collaboration, use of technology, encouraging students to learn from each other, to explain concepts, to ask good questions, a feedback much more immediate based on the technology using a Blackboard system, and, and, and what happens is many more students succeed. So our environment is not a cutthroat environment. That's one of the challenges in STEM in America. Mm -hmm. Too often we pit students against each other. We really work to teach students that in real life, people solve problems by working in groups. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Dr. Freeman Rabowski, president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Uh, now, Dr. Rabowski, you know, I'm curious. We had mentioned a little bit earlier about, um, you know, the affordability of higher education. Yes. Um, you know, where can we go with this in terms of when we look at a, a new uh, administration um, at the White House uh, come next year? I mean, what's the, the situation in terms of how we can make college more affordable and accessible to more students? Right. There are two, three things I would say. Number one, it's really important to look at who's taking advantage of the financial aid programs we have right now. I have the privilege of chairing the White House Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans. But what we focus on will be true not just for black students, but for students of any type, particularly those who may come from, uh, from homes where they have not had the support to, to prepare completely for college, those who are from low-income homes and working-class homes. And what am I talking about? Number one, we need to make sure that families and teachers know the deadlines for applying for the federal financial aid. Too many students miss deadlines and therefore miss out on quite a bit of money that they could get, particularly if they are from low-income backgrounds. Number two, our country needs to work harder to help working-class and middle-class people to be able to support the education. And I think the, what's incumbent upon us is to look at what's working right now, what programs are most effective, and what programs are best practice when thinking about helping more families not just low-income families, but middle-class families to get what they need in order to educate their children. And, and what's important is to be vigilant, to give people a chance to see what they're going to do, but to ask the right questions and to hold all of us accountable, the citizens and elected officials. What do you think isn't working in terms of helping students afford college? 
I don't think we've looked at the challenges of working class people. We, we, we have some things in place, Pell Grant, that should be helping a number of low-income students, even though it has not kept up with what it was doing for low-income students 30 years ago. But, but I see too many students who are not making the deadline, so we need to work on that for the existing programs. But we have not talked about how to help the struggling middle class, people who may be working every day, and who are, are doing as much as they can to help their children who need support in educating their children at the college level. We need more programs also, not just for low-income people, but for working and middle-class people. Any concern about what will happen to these particular programs under a President-elect Trump administration? It, it's, it's appropriate for us to have questions. I mean, clearly we should have questions to say what is going to happen. I, I believe in giving people a chance to see what they will do, and to hold people accountable at every level. And I think it's important that we ask the right questions, that we are professional, and that we keep the focus on the well-being of our students because the well-being of our students is inextricably tied to the well-being of our country. Uh, one of my last questions for you, you know, starting at a young age, parents, especially in this country, they fret about, you know, what activities their children should be involved in, what grades they get, if they're going to make it to the Ivy League level. What would you say to them? I would say focus on strong reading skills and math skills and Legos. Of, of all <laughs> the things I would tell you about for children, uh, Legos and puzzles are really important and encouraging their curiosity and giving them a sense of self, letting them know that they're deeply loved and that they can do anything if they're just willing to work hard. Mm. So earlier you were saying if you have grit, you can achieve anything. That's exactly right. And I would say to parents, don't go by the, the social prestige of a name. They're wonderful institutions, public and private, in our country. I think that parents need to look at every institution, look for students similar to their kids, look how they're doing and what what they can say about what the institution can say about its graduates and make a decision based on what's best for your child that's what's important i've been speaking with dr freeman rabowski the third he's president of umbc the university of maryland baltimore county he's one of the panelists for this thursday's connecticut forum on the future of higher education that's december 1st at 8 p.m the forum will be moderated by wmpr's john dankoski and we'll have more information on our website wmpr.org slash where we live dr rabowski such a pleasure to speak with you thank you so much thank you looking forward to it coming up we'll get an update on wmpr's opioid reporting project Back after a short break, this is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut joined states across the nation that are in the midst of the opioid abuse epidemic. Federal officials say drug overdoses are the leading cause of death in the U.S. Last year alone, there were more than 700 accidental drug deaths in the state, according to the chief medical examiner's office. And that's more than twice the number of overdose deaths from three years ago, according to TrendCT.org. WNPR's digital reporter Ryan Karen King has been profiling people affected by this crisis. And this past summer, he met Hartford man, 76-year-old Sherwood Taylor, who had been using heroin for a long time. Sherwood was outspoken about his addiction and his path to recovery. Ryan joins us now with an update about Sherwood and his reporting on opioid addiction and recovery. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So tell us about Sherwood. So Sherwood was a man who defied statistics. 
Um, he had been using heroin for um, almost 60 years, over 50 years of his life. Um, he spent uh, using this drug um, on and off and trying to, um, several times, trying to recover um, successfully and stop using. Unfortunately, um, at the beginning of November, at the beginning of this month, Sherwood died um, from causes that were unrelated um, to an opioid overdose. Now, I remember your original profile of Sherwood this past summer, and you had included an interview with a doctor who talked about how unusual it was for someone who had battled addiction for so long using substances that he survived for that long. It, it really was unusual, and um, statistics show that most people who use drugs um, will usually die within the first 15 to 20 years of using them. Um, so Sherwood really had a long life um, considering um, the, the, the things that he had faced throughout his life, the hardships and, and, and the, the consequences that usually come um, with using drugs. Now he, when I talked to him over the summer, he mentioned that he was able to persevere through all of that because um, because simply his outlook, I mean, there was things that he did, the way he conducted himself, like um, uh, he, he sort of pledged not to share needles because that's one way to sort of mitigate health consequences. Um, but he said that his outlook really contributed to the fact, to his survival, um, because he didn't see himself as, um, you know, a, as what he would say a junkie. He saw himself um, as someone who abused drugs um, and and lived his life regardless of that. So he was very open about his addiction and then attempts at recovery. You know, how did he share his story with others? So uh, Sher Sherwood was very open to sharing his story, and um, in in ways that might help people who faced you know similar issues around addiction. Um, only a few days, only about a week before Sherwood died this November, he was speaking at a conference on uh, overdose prevention. Um, so we'll hear him now speaking at that conference. It's been very hard. What lessons that I learned, don't start. That's the first one. Because whether it's up your nose, in your arm, in your veins, or anything, that's the shortest answer I can give. Don't stop. Now Sherwood's memorial uh, was last week on Tuesday. Well, thank you for sharing uh, your story about Sherwood Taylor with us. Now, um, you've been reporting on um, the, the issue behind many people in recovery, and it involves not just seeking treatment and programs, but also figuring out like where they can live while they're battling uh, this addiction and trying to get into recovery. What kind of housing exists for people in this in this uh, circumstance? Well, there's there's several different types of housing, um, and the one that I focused on in my reporting um, was was called sober living, um, and it's it's known as recovery housing, or you could live in a sober house. Um, but the specific type of house I looked at was a privately owned sober living home. And these are places that people who are battling addiction can choose to live in after they exit a longer-term recovery program, like a 30-day recovery program, a 45-day recovery program. Um, and they live in a sober living house that's privately owned when they're transitioning back into society. So these are places where other people with addiction live. Um, there are often places where you can get, uh, um, get support in, in attending 12-step meetings, um, 
uh, get support in different types of therapy. Um, and it really depends on where you live. Um, and that's what we've, we've found in this reporting is that there are good sober living homes where there's uh, extensive support and programs for people to attend that live there. And then there are bad sober living homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sober living houses can sometimes be in poor condition, uh, physically, um, unclean, um, often unsafe conditions for anyone to live in. Um, and sometimes they just lack the enforcement of the own, their own rules around sobriety. Now, you spoke with someone named Lisa Ferguson. She runs a, one of these privately owned sober houses in Clinton. Let's hear it. My daughter was in a recovery house without support. And it was clean and it was nice, but there was no support. You cooked on your own. Um, you got to meetings on your own. You did every, You got to therapy by choice if you wanted to go to therapy. All the things that you really need to do when you're newly recovered because your brain is still foggy. You need time for your brain to come to to heal a little, to get to the point where it's clear and you can actually start to make good choices. And she failed. She failed. A lot of people fail. And there's just no need for it. So, so she was looking at her own personal experience to how she would run this particular sober house? Yes, so Lisa Ferguson runs Right Path House in Clinton, Connecticut. It's a privately owned sober house. She owns the house. She's not funded or regulated by the state. Um, And she draws from her own experience, as uh, you said, because she herself is in recovery. Her own daughter is in recovery as well, as she mentioned. Um, And she actually lost a niece um, to alcoholism. Um, who would have been able to be in a sober house um, but was, was, wasn't able to get into one on time. Now, in your reporting, you know, what did you find out in terms of why there are no regulations? There's no, there's no entity that's, that's looking after these, these sober houses. So what it comes down to usually is that the Americans with Disabilities Act limits towns and how they can regulate sober houses. Um, people um, with addiction or alcoholism can't be singled out um, in these regulations. Mm-hmm. Under that act, um, they, they're able to find housing that supports their recovery. Um, so a lot of times towns will, will consider uh, regulating and cracking down on these privately owned sober houses that oftentimes are just in it for the money and not giving the people who live there a supportive environment for recovery, but they can't because of federal regulation. So you also spoke to people about how um, there can be better relationships between, you know, these sober houses and the community. What did you hear? So, you know, what I've found is that people will will hear that a sober house is coming to their neighborhood and they don't necessarily have a positive reaction to this because they don't they don't understand often that this is a place where people who live there don't want to be using drugs or alcohol. The problem is, is that you have sober houses and and uh, bad sober houses that have that give others a reputation because they don't enforce their own rules. So the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery is one organization in the state 
um, that's working to tackle this problem of uh, poorly managed sober houses. And they're doing it in a way where anyone who wants to run a sober house or does currently run a sober house can volunteer for their inspection and certification program. Um, and what they stress at CCAR is the safety of the people that live there. They want to make sure that there's no leaking pipes and the place is clean. Um, they want to ensure that the people who manage the sober house are, are concerned for their residents. Um, and something they stress is that people who open a sober house should have a good relationship with the community they're in. Um, and we'll hear from Ken Oligata. He's from CCAR, and he runs the certification and inspection program for sober houses. And we're going to hear him talking about um, why it's important to ha have this positive relationship between a sober house and the community it's in. A lot of folks open recovery houses throughout the country, and nobody knows about it. They're following the guidelines in their state, in their town, around zoning and building codes and fire codes, and that's good. That's all good. We support that. But nobody knows. The neighbors didn't know that down the end of the road there's a, a house full of girls or, or a house full of guys, um, and they're all uh, recovering alcoholics and, and addicts. And the, then when they find out, the neighbors find out, there's uh, the feelings of upset, and, and then they go marching down to City Hall and they want to shut them down. So when you were talking with a lot of these advocates, I mean, what can be done at the state level? Well, there was an attempt uh, last year to regulate sober houses um, on the state level and the state legislature. Um, I spoke with Torrington Representative Michelle Cook um, who had proposed this legislation, which did die in committee, um, but it would register sober houses as a business to, to provide some sort of way for towns to, to be aware of what sober houses are in their communities. Um, New London is a city that has uh, in the past year tried to um, keep track of the sober houses that are in their, their city. Um, but at the same time, um, they're not forcing their sober houses to comply with any sort of regulation. They're providing a framework for them to be involved with actually uh, Ken Oligata's voluntary certification program. Um, so there's, there's, the, the, there's the possible regulation on the state level. Um, there's uh, the initiatives within cities like New London. But people like Ken Oligata from CCAR actually are against state regulation. Um, they say the bad sober houses will naturally be weeded out um, as they uh, certify and inspect and more and more sober houses uh, come out of the, the, the woodwork to volunteer for um, this, this certification program. Um, and they also say uh, that state regulation could make these privately owned sober houses um, which are which are valued for being a home and and emulating family family life and that sort of support. They're afraid the home will then turn into more of what what they call a facility. Now, what else are you working on in terms of your future reporting? We know that you're part of this ongoing coverage here at WNPR to look at the opioid crisis. So, uh, you know, I'm interesting interested in seeing if CCAR is successful in getting sober houses around the state to sign up for this program. It really hinges on people volunteering. And if not, if, if, if the state actually mandates regulations in a way that do doesn't violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and I'm also, I'd also be interested in, in seeing if cities like New London, um, where there are 30 plus uh, 
unregulated, privately owned sober houses are successfully in, in pretty much discouraging, discouraging the, the bad sober houses from operating. Mm. Ryan Karen King is our digital reporter. He's been contributing stories to WMPR's Opioid Crisis Reporting Initiative. Now, that project's funded by Hartford Healthcare Behavioral Health Network's Match Program. And you can see and read more of Ryan's stories at our website, WMPR.org. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Lucy. This is where we live. Up next, if you're 40 with certain risk factors, it might be time for you to start taking drugs to control your cholesterol. We'll find out more from a cardiologist. That's after this short break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now, if you're 40, you might be interested in this next interview. That's because the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is now urging people this age to take a cholesterol-lowering drug to prevent heart disease. To find out more, we're joined in studio by Dr. Peter Schulman. He's a cardiologist at the University of Connecticut's Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. He specializes in preventive cardiology. Dr. Schulman, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you very much. Well, first off, you know, how prevalent is uh, high cholesterol and heart disease in this country? Is it still considered the number one killer? Oh, yes. You, you've hit the nail on the head. Heart disease kills more Americans than any other cause of any other cause of death combined. And that's been the case every year since the year 1900 to the year 2016. There was only one exception. That was uh, during the Spanish flu in 1918. And so what has been done in recent years to try to lower this statistic? Well, a number of things. There are a number of preventive strategies and there are a number of treatment strategies. I think everybody agrees that if we can prevent disease before it occurs, that would be the best best option for us all. And uh, over the past uh, decades, probably two decades, when the uh, cholesterol guidelines uh, began uh, to, to come out, uh, the 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 threshold for treating people with elevated cholesterol continues to drop and drop and drop. So years ago, 10 years ago, we were, or 20 years ago, we were treating people only with a very, very high cholesterol. And now, as, as you alluded to in your introduction, we're treating, we're recommending that, that patients be treated with far lower cholesterol levels. So give us an idea. Um, this might be pretty basic for some listeners, but, you know, I know there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So the LDL, we have total cholesterol. We have other components of the cholesterol. We have triglycerides. But what people focus on uh, is the total cholesterol, which is has c- contains everything. And then there's the HDL cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol. If you're new to this, you can, mem- you can remember it as happy HDL I cholesterol. I like that. And the LDL is the is the bad cholesterol, lousy cholesterol, and the higher that is, the worse or the higher the risk that one has for, for having a heart attack. HDL is the good cholesterol. The higher your HDL cholesterol, the lower your risk of a heart attack. So those are the those are the parameters we're dealing with. And then talk about the process. So if someone has a lot of the bad cholesterol, what is that doing inside the body? So when someone has a lot of bad cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, that bad cholesterol tends to get into the walls of the blood vessels. When it gets into the walls of the blood vessels, it forms a buildup like a plaque, like a mini mountain like a, or a little hill. And if that gets large enough and if that splits open, gets so big that it splits open or from another other from a number of other factors splits open, then a heart attack can form that the plaque, that little bulge splits open, a blood clot forms on top of it, and that can cause a heart attack and that can that can kill us. 
So I opened up the the uh, interview mentioning this recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force that if you're 40 and if these individuals have high uh, risk factors, they should start with this uh, cholesterol, um, low cholesterol, uh, dr- a drug that lowers their cor- cholesterol. So talk about what those risk factors are. So, so there are a number of risk factors uh, that include uh, diabetes, that include cigarette smoking, that include uh, high blood pressure, that include uh, elevated cholesterol. So those are the four, four major, four the major risk factors that you can do something about. There are other risk factors that we can't do something about. For example, as we get older, as I like to say, more mature, there's nothing we can do really to to reverse the aging, to reverse to lower our age. So there, are these mo- there's major risk factors that people look at. There, there are a few others like sedentary lifestyle, and uh, uh, obesity is another. Uh, but but the ones that are focused here are are the ones that I mentioned. So if you have a family history of heart disease or diabetes, but you yourself, um, your doctors don't consider you to be at risk at that time, is this something that that individuals should be thinking about? So that's that's an that's a very good question. It's it's pretty, uh, it's not controversial, but it's hard to f- it's hard it's a little bit hard to grasp because it turns out that family history does not figure in to these equations, to the heart association equations, to this uh, cohort uh, equation, to the, to the data that are used here. And the reason being is because if one has a strong family history of heart disease, it's very likely that it's going to show up in your profile. So if you have a f- strong family history, uh, that probably means your cholesterol is elevated, or you may have diabetes, or you may have high blood pressure. The one exception might be if your parents were smokers. If your parents were heavy smokers and you never smoked a cigarette and you know, say your father had a heart attack because he was a smoker, that may not that may not carry over, but many of the other risk factors do carry over to to oneself. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. I'm speaking with Dr. Peter Schulman. He's a cardiologist at the University of Connecticut's Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. We invited him into the studio to ask him about this recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force urging people who have turned 40 uh, and if they are at risk for a heart attack or other um, health issues to start taking a cholesterol-lowering drug to prevent heart disease. Now, let's talk more about that drug. Uh, Tell us about it and how that helps. So the class of drugs that uh, we're talking about here is the class of drugs known as statins. So there are a number of statin drugs. There we've we've may have heard of Lipitor or Zocor or Crestor. There are generic names for each of those. And they work by by, reducing the synthesis of cholesterol in the body, mostly in the liver. So basically it, it uh, inhibits the enzyme that helps generate cholesterol. So if that enzyme is inhibited, the body cannot make as much cholesterol. The cholesterol levels in the blood go down, and that reduces the chance of buildup of plaque. Now you're a cardiologist. What, did you, what do you think about this recommendation? So it's it's interesting. Uh, this is a recommendation for. Uh, this was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. It's largely for primary care providers. It turns out that the cardiologists have been as aggressive, if not even slightly more aggressive, than this new guideline is. The the, the heart. Aso- I'm sorry. The American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. Those are the two main cardiology. Uh, professional organizations, they have actually recommended this since uh, since, uh, 2013. Mm -hmm. So uh, these are, are this uh, United States uh, 
Services Preventive Task Force is now more applied for the general population. And the interesting thing about it is if this is accepted, if we had Obamacare, this may be now one of the one of the recommendations that would be because it's a national guideline, it would have to be covered under the Affordable Care Act, whereas before uh, it wouldn't necessarily have to be done so. So, so the bottom line is that this new uh, guideline, these new guidelines for the general population and for all physicians now, now actually conform to what the Heart Association and American College of Cardiology have been recommending for the last few years. So the recommendation's been out there. How do your patient, have your patients been you know, accepting this recommendation? This is a good thing for them to do? Well, that's a, that's a good question because people ask, they said, look, my cholesterol is not that high. But if you look at the current recommendations by the Heart Association, if you are 65 years and older, unfortunately I fall into that category, if you're 65 years and older and you're a male, it's almost impossible not to have a recommendation to be on a statin drug. Uh, if you are, uh, that's that's because the age factor. The what these recommendations look at, it looks at a calculation of your ten-year risk of having a cardiac event, a coronary artery event. That's a heart attack, mm-hmm. a major heart attack, a minor heart attack, or stroke or death from from one of those conditions. And if your risk is over seven and a half percent in the next ten years, we're not talking about one year. We're not talking about two years. We're talking about seven and a half percent in the next 10 years, it's recommended that you be on a cholesterol-lowering drug. So for those of us who are listening who are near 40 or, or 40, a little bit uh, low 40s, this is like maybe a, a real kick in the pants to start getting healthier? Yes, yes it is. And in fact, so what this recommendation is, as you, you actually summarized <laughs> it nicely, what this recommendation is, is that uh, if you're over 40, and if you do the calculations and your 10-year risk is 7.5% of having an event in the next 10 years and you have one risk factor, let's say a smoker, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, etc., then it's recommended that you be uh, offered to take a statin drug by your pro- provider, by your primary care provider. Um, you've been a doctor for years. You know that um, some people really are adverse to having to take medication, especially daily medication. Um, so what would you say to people who, you know, they don't want to be taking a, a cholesterol-lowering drug? There's got to be something else that I can do. Well, that's that's a couple of ways to approach that. Number one, some of the countries, for example, in in Europe and in Canada, they have a greater emphasis on preventive measures exactly as you spoke about. So, for example, exercise, weight loss, smoking cessation as a, as a first line, and eating a better diet as, as first line, whereas the United States says, you know what, we can, we can do that as well, but let's, let's just throw the statin on them. So, the, the, uh, so that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it, when patients, when I really f- believe that my patients should be on a statin drug, on a cholesterol-lowering drug, they say, you know, I don't want to take a drug every day, exactly as you ask. And what I say is, look, wh- what do you, wh- what do you want to live for? Like, I have a grandchild now, so I, uh, I looked at the guidelines. I, sort of, uh, looked looked a little askance and said, do I really want to take a statin drug every day? And then I pulled up a picture of my grandchild and I said, yes, I do. I want to be around as long as possible. So, so these are things that we might use to motivate to motivate patients to to be compliant with this because. The data show that 
uh, especially a new study that came out last May, the data show that even these relatively lower risk people with not too many risk factors and and uh, this 10-year calculated risk that's that's uh, over 7.5%, it showed that you can actually reduce the risk of a heart attack by about 25%. Risk is not super high. So, we're, again, we're talking about 7, 7%, 7.5% over 10 years. That's less than 1% a year of having a heart attack. But, uh, but there are millions of people out there, and you don't want it to happen to you. If it happens to you, you're 100%. Um, so for those of us that um, are, again, hearing this, this uh, recommendation that if you are 40 with risk factors and you may need to take uh, statins, is it something that's affordable? That's actually another very good question, and in fact, it's becoming more and more affordable. These drugs are all available in genetic form, and in fact, some of the the pharmacies, like the Walmarts and the Targets, and some of the other, uh, and even CVS to a certain extent, and and I'm not trying to, they're all, they're all very good. Uh, and Walgreens, I can go on and on and on. They actually have these what are called the four dollar generics. So you can buy a three months, one month supply for four dollars, and a three month supply for. $10. Now, that doesn't fit all these drugs, but it does usually cover the low-dose statin drugs. So, yes, in, in short, they're very affordable, and most insurance plans, and now that in Connecticut we have ninety over 90% of people with health insurance, 90 to 95% with health insurance, they're, they're very affordable. We started this interview talking about heart disease being the number one killer. If this recommendation is followed, um, how soon before we see that slashed? Again, uh, you hit the nail on the head. We're we're now we're actually on the cusp where heart disease will be falling below the other causes of death combined. So I believe that in the coming years, and I think people may have predicted that this year might have been the year. It didn't quite happen. Heart disease is still the leading killer. But down the road, maybe one, two, three, or four years, we'll probably be seeing heart disease fall to number two or number three behind cancer and other diseases. I want to thank Dr. Peter Schulman, cardiologist at the University of Connecticut's Pat and Jim Calhoun Cardiology Center. He specializes in preventive cardiology. Dr. Schulman, I want to thank you for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyan Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.